I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. And welcome back to part two of the coverage of Tanya Harding on the show. I never plan on having two-parter episodes. I always go ahead and record the whole thing just in case for some reason during editing or whatever, it gets too short and it's not enough to split into two. But it was very clear to me about halfway through recording the episode that this would be a two-parter no matter what. But I continued on and recorded the rest of the episode anyway. But since I gave myself a couple of extra days before I wanted to put this episode up on Patreon, I also went back and added a few more things to the episode that I think made it even better. And if you want to be like those that got the episode early, you can go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist and join the feminist faves level, which is $8 a month where you get these episodes early and ad free. You get a little wrap up on Monday or Tuesday. This week I had to do Tuesday because yesterday my voice was acting a little funky. It's been so windy in L.A. And I just kind of like go over everything from the episode, give any concluding thoughts or stories or side Googles that didn't fit into the episode, things like that. And this past episode, I talked about a time that Max and I were served a drink by a man who said that he was babysat by Nancy Kerrigan as a child. But you can also join the $5 level, which was once the Angry Feminist Book Club and is now Mad Gabin with Madigan. I am going to be uploading an episode this week at some point. My next few days are probably going to be pretty busy with editing for another show and getting the mini episode together. But all the while, I'm going to be looking for some frequently asked questions about feminism online and giving my perspective on them. But for anyone in the future who wants any advice, any questions answered or just anything that they want me to read on Patreon and give my reaction to, you can send any of that in through email at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. Anyone can do this, not just Patreon listeners, but if you want to hear my reaction, you are unfortunately going to have to purchase one of the levels to get any of that. Okay, that's all I really need to get into. I can't wait for you to hear the rest of this episode. So without further ado, let's get into it. Nancy Kerrigan had just gotten off the ice after a practice session. And shortly after going behind the curtains to go to the dressing room, she was attacked. There were cameras and lots of people there who caught it all on tape. And just to refresh your memory, I'm going to play you some of that audio now. Hi. Why? 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 
moment there they thought they were going to catch the guy because one of Nancy's coaches had seen someone run away and people even went after him. Did the guy go and get outside? According to Tanya, she heard about the incident when her coach called her hotel room and woke her up. She said she was scared to death to go out for practice that day since no one had been caught. Maybe there was some sort of madman out there targeting figure skaters? For the skater's safety, extra security had been hired, but everyone, including Tanya, found it really challenging to stay focused. After practice, a reporter asked Tanya for her take on the, quote, Nancy Kerrigan situation, as the reporter called it. Tanya said, it definitely bothers me. I know how she feels, and um, I feel really bad it happened. I was looking forward to competing against her, and, um, you know, I just hope that she's okay. For some reason, one line in that statement has always really bothered me. She said, she knows how Nancy feels, which I've always disagreed with because she had never had her chances pulled away from her in such a tragic way like Nancy had before. But watching it the most recent time around, I think she was really doing her best to try to sympathize and say she knows how important this competition was to Nancy. In a press conference on January 7th, it was announced that Nancy Kerrigan would not be competing at nationals after a recommendation from her doctors. There was no fracture and no ligament damage, thankfully, but it was a really bad bone bruise, and it was located right on the kneecap of her landing leg. The pain was so bad that she couldn't put weight on it, and there was no way she was going to go out and land any jumps. Nancy, devastated knowing that she lost her shot at the Olympics, had to sit in the stands and watch her fellow competitors skate. The next day, Tanya took the ice for her short program. Quick break for a skating lesson. Each skater performs two programs at each competition. The short program and the long program, also called the free skate. The short program was a replacement for compulsory figures, which gave the sport its namesake, figure skating, which made up 60% of your total competition score until it was thankfully removed in 1947. And thank goddess, cause learning figures was the most boring thing I'd ever endured besides algebra. The short program is more regimented than the free skate, hence the names, and you must meet certain requirements, including a double or triple axle, one triple or quad jump not in a combination, one triple or quad jump in a combination, one flying spin, which is like a flying camel, flying sit, death drop, butterflies, etc. weird names for shit. You must have a camel spin or sit spin with one change of foot, and a step sequence which covers the entire surface of the ice, which is kind of like what makes up for figures. You're not doing any jumps or spins, but you have very specific edges and steps that you have to do in order for it to be correct. And there's different levels of difficulties for these step sequences as well. The scores from the short program and the long program put together decide the winner. I wanted to add that music in particular underneath because that was my last long program music and I'm obsessed with it. Tanya skated well in the short program, but she missed the triple axle and popped it, making it into a single. As Nancy watched from a booth in the crowd, looking down at the ice longingly. Even without that triple axle though, Tanya became the national champion. She had a ticket to the Olympics. And remember how I told you last week how usually it's the top scoring skaters that make it to the Olympics, but that sometimes the officials make up their own minds? Well, it was the Olympics committee and not the judges who made the final decision this time around. It's caused a lot of drama each time this has happened and often leaves the person who's placed at nationals feeling heartbroken for missing their shot at the Olympics, even though they technically should have qualified. And sometimes it is the judges that fuck it up too. I will never forget Ashley Wagner's furious response to just missing the Olympic team in 2018 when she really thought that she had deserved it. 
I'm furious. I am absolutely furious. I know when I go and I lay it down and I absolutely left one jump on the table, but for me to put out two programs that I did at this competition, as solid as I skated and to get those scores, I am furious. And I it was clear that U.S. figure skating wanted Nancy to represent them at the Olympic Games, but they were only a handful of weeks away and no one knew if Nancy would be healed enough to even compete. And when I say healed, I mean both physically and mentally. If I were Nancy, I would be incredibly traumatized. And any athlete knows that sports are just as much about the mental side of things as it is the physical. Would she be able to handle it even if her knee was healed? Well, Nancy and I are two very different women. She basically decided that she would deal with the trauma after the Olympics and just wanted to focus on getting back on the ice. This is commendable for sure, but I wouldn't ever recommend procrastinating feeling your feelings like she's doing. Nancy told the people at U.S. Figure Skating, I can do this. I can compete. And that was that. She was chosen for the Olympics. I doubt many other skaters would have gotten this kind of treatment, nor would these officials put this kind of faith in many other skaters. It was clear that they wanted her to compete too. So it was official. The U.S. Olympic team consisted of Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding. Poor baby Michelle Kwan, who came in second place, would have to wait until the 1998 Olympics just to be beaten by the 15-year-old Tara Lipinski. Back in Portland, Oregon on January 10, 1994, Tanya was welcomed with a horde of cameras and reporters, along with family and friends who greeted her at the airport to congratulate her. This was all new for Tanya. She was the star. She was finally getting the sort of attention she wanted and honestly deserved. That is, if you believe that at this point, Tanya knew nothing about her link to the attack on Nancy. If she did, this quote she gave to a reporter is much more sinister. I'm really happy, but um, it won't be a true crown until I get my chance with Nancy, and that'll be Olympics, and let me tell you, I'm in a whipper butt. Then a reporter asked Tanya if the police had spoken with her yet. She said they had and that they'd spoken with just about everyone else at the competition in Detroit as well. So it wasn't weird that she'd been interviewed. Yeah, I talked to them. Okay. I mean, why <laughs> not? I have nothing to hide. Exactly. So you, you did speak with them and, mm -hmm. and you feel good about the conversation? Oh, yeah. I mean, why shouldn't I? I mean, they had they talked to everybody and they, they're doing, mm -hmm. um, like, let's say, a thorough investigation to try and find the man who did it. Harding's bodyguard is working to make sure she feels secure so she can concentrate on winning at the Olympics. Uh, well, she's always been... Hmm. Did you hear that thing at the end about a bodyguard? That man is Sean Eckhard. And I think now is as good a time as ever to rewind and go back to just before nationals. Eckhart ran his own company, Worldwide Bodyguard Services, out of his parents' home in Clackamas, Oregon. Sean was a friend of Jeff's from school and he appointed himself as Tanya's bodyguard, surely hoping to get a little piece of the pie just like Jeff. Other sources claim that Tanya hired Sean herself after receiving a death threat, but Tanya denies this. She says he was never her bodyguard. In her words, she thought he was a complete idiot. According to the Detroit Free Press, in mid-December 1993, before Nationals, Jeff had been commiserating with Sean Eckhart about the politics of figure skating and how he and Tanya felt the judges would choose Nancy over Tanya for the Olympic team. The two men then concocted a plan together to injure Nancy, leaving the win for Tanya. Jeff then gets contacted repeatedly by a man calling himself Derek, who wanted to discuss a business proposal involving Eckhart. Sean tells Jeff that Derek is a middleman for the real bad guys, and Jeff agreed to meet with him. On December 28, 1993, Eckhart's mother Agnes greeted Jeff at the door and told him that the others had already arrived for the meeting. This is just so pathetic sounding. Jeff met with Eckhart and Derek, probably in Sean's mother's basement, and there was another man there by the name of Shane Stant. They allegedly discussed what kind of injury to inflict upon Nancy, and according to the Detroit Free Press, Sean Eckhart even suggested murder. According to Sean's classmates at his security school, he was a blowhard with major James Bond fantasies. The rest of the men thankfully agreed that murder was not the answer. They agree that the easiest location for the attack would be at Nancy's training site in Boston before leaving for nationals. They also concocted the idea of sending out threatening letters to a variety of other skaters, including Tanya, to throw people off. According to Sean Eckhart, Tanya was fully aware of the plan the entire time. But I'm going to let you all make up your own minds as I continue on with the story. 
Tanya had been given $10,000 for travel and other things for nationals, and apparently she had agreed to use whatever money was left over from travel to pay the guys doing the attack, according to Jeff. And again, according to Jeff, when Tanya picked him up from the meeting at Sean's parents' house in her car, she said, he told her, I think we should go for it. And she says, okay, let's do it. Jeff also alleged that Tanya had called Nancy's rink in Boston and asked for practice times, remarking when she got off the phone, that stupid bitch gave it to me. Later, Tanya would tell the FBI that this was bullshit. Do keep that information in your back pocket for later. For the next step in the plan, they sent Shane Stant to Boston to stalk and assault Nancy Kerrigan. While they were waiting to hear that the attack had happened, the rest of them again got together at Eckhart's parents' house to wait it out. But on December 29th and again on the 30th, there was still no word from Boston. Apparently, Shane was unable to locate Nancy and failed. It would be Shane Stant who would eventually attack Nancy Kerrigan on January 6th with Derek Smith acting as the getaway driver. Pretty much as soon as the attack happened, the authorities began to get word that Tanya was somehow involved in it. Sean Eckhart just couldn't keep his mouth shut and started bragging to anyone who would listen that he had helped plan the Kerrigan attack. But yet, even though Eckhart was yapping his mouth to everyone in town, Tanya still claims that she didn't know what was going on. But I'm not so sure, because in an interview for the Price of Gold documentary, she says that she remembers Sean acting weird and, quote, talking about this stuff. So clearly, you heard something, Tanya. Then, Coin TV, all capital K-O-I-N TV, Anchor and Schatz received an anonymous letter which gave specifics about the conspiracy to attack Nancy Kerrigan. The letter specifically implicated Tanya, Jeff, and Sean Eckhart as part of the plot. And this is nuts because Tanya was actually somewhat friendly with this Anne Schatz woman. So Anne decided to give Tanya a call and was like, what the fuck is going on? I have this letter and I think you're going to want to take a look at it. Tanya asked Anne to fax the letter over or something, but Anne refused. The only way that she would show Tanya the letter is if she came down to the station and agreed to an interview. Some friend. Jeff, heard in the background of the phone call, agrees for Tanya. In this interview, Tanya and Anne are facing each other, but just over Anne's left shoulder, you can see Jeff sitting behind her. And as Tanya's answering questions, her eyes keep darting back and forth between Anne and Jeff, like she's looking for Jeff's approval before she responds or looking to him for help. read the letter, your reaction to the letter. I, I can't believe it. I mean, why does someone want to discredit me? I mean, I... I just don't understand. Um. According to Tanya, when they got back in the car to leave the station, she point blank asked him what was going on. She said, what did you do? Then, according to Tanya, he hit her hard. She said at this point she knew something was going on, but she didn't know exactly what. After the interview, Ann Schatz gave the letter to the FBI. The FBI discovered that the woman who had written the letter had heard the story from Sean Eckhart's dad, who had also been running his mouth about the attack. What the heck, people? Stay fucking stupid. (laughs) They interviewed Sean later that same night, which went on for a long time as he initially told them lie after lie. But once they were able to show Eckhart how much they could prove, he, in the words of FBI agent John King, folded like a cheap accordion. They got a signed statement from him naming everyone involved in the plot, including Tanya Harding. Eckhart was arrested on January 14, 1994. Derek Smith was also arrested that day after being flown to Portland in FBI custody. Shane Stant was also soon arrested. Derek and Shane quickly confessed to the whole thing, and even if they didn't readily confess, the evidence against them was pretty damning. Stant was such a fucking idiot that he stayed in a hotel in Detroit under his own name, so it was pretty easy to place him near the Nationals' competition at the time of the attack. Again, so fucking stupid. They also left phone records. I mean, everyone interviewed about these guys talk about how dumb they were. And now that these guys were arrested, Tanya got scared. She told the documentary that she had never met Derek Smith and Shane Stant. But suddenly, Tanya got the fame she'd always wanted. But it wasn't for the reason she intended. Paparazzi followed her and Jeff around everywhere, and they were relentless. This brings us to January 15th, 1994, just four weeks until the Olympics. 
On January 15th, Tanya went to speak with the authorities and denied that she and Jeff were involved at all. The authorities then started to play it all out for Tanya about how bad it was for her. But in her mind, according to Tanya, she was more afraid of Jeff, who said he would kill her if she opened her mouth about anything. She eventually told the authorities that it was Jeff who was the ringleader of the plot and that she had had no idea that he was involved until she got back from nationals. She was also able to give them lots of very specific evidence to convince them of Jeff's involvement. After that interview, she left him for good. And Jeff was arrested. The second Jeff was arrested, everyone in the world automatically assumed that, as Tanya's quote-unquote husband, even though they were divorced at the time, that she had to have been involved too. And the media storm began to catch even more speed. Tanya's attorney gave a press conference trying to dissuade this notion, saying, I know it would be very easy for many people to conclude that Tanya Harding was somehow involved in this. I would ask all of you to simply keep an open mind in this matter. It is not yet resolved. And in this time, both Nancy and Tanya are still trying to stay focused on the Olympics. Nancy was working hard at her rehabilitation, and miraculously, within weeks, she was skating around again. And shortly after that, she started skating full out. Nancy's team became hopeful that she might still have a shot. And though there was still a lot of media following Nancy around on the East Coast, she was fairly well protected, while Tanya over on the West Coast was dealing with a beast. Wherever Tanya went to practice, the media followed. And Tanya mainly had to train at a shopping mall. And it literally looks like Tanya is a zoo animal and all of the reporters are just looking down upon her like some sort of spectacle. Journalists would lean over the barrier of the glass over the rink to get questions with her. They even tracked down her mother at the rink. Things were getting crazy. There would be a full-on press conference held outside of her coach Diane's house. There were bugs planted in the homes of people involved. Tanya was followed out of her home to her car to the rink everywhere like she was goddamn Taylor Swift or something. In the beginning, Tanya was still very pleasant with all of the reporters and journalists and seemed to be kind of enjoying the attention, which is a really bad look in my opinion. It's almost like in her mind at this point, maybe she thinks she's getting all this attention for being the national champion. I don't know, but she seems a little bit delusional at the start. But you know what, Tanya? I think the majority of Americans don't really give a shit who wins nationals in figure skating. And this was one of the biggest stories in the nation. Even people who knew nothing about the sport of figure skating and couldn't have cared less about the ladies' figure skating event at the upcoming Olympics were transfixed and obsessed with this story. The founder of Skating Magazine said it was like watching Dynasty in real life, which is funny to me because India's mom was on that show. It really was like a soap opera come to life. It was the Ice Princess versus the, according to the documentary's words, trailer trash ignoramus. Ouch. The story was told in such a black and white way and no one cared to ever look into the gray. Eventually, the attention began to get to Tanya. The level of paparazzi following her around and the tactics they used to get to her could only be classified as harassment. One time, they had had her car towed just so Tanya would have to come running and screaming out of her house. It's so cruel. She was so tired of telling them to back off that she even wore a sweatshirt that said, no comment on it. And if someone could have one of those sweatshirts made for me, that would be great. Thank you. Training for the Olympics became impossible for her. She couldn't focus. Eventually, Jeff cut a deal with the prosecutors and told them that Tanya had been aware of the plan to attack Nancy Kerrigan from the very beginning, and that she was even angry when the men hired for the attack didn't carry it out sooner. With this deal, Jeff would plead guilty and get a reduced charge. People believed that money was a big motivator for Tanya to not only want to win the Olympics, but also to maybe want to attack Nancy. In the documentary, Ann Schatz today said that winning means being set for life, which is simply not true. An Olympic champion may get a lot of sponsorships shortly after the event and maybe for a few years afterward if they're lucky and have a great personality. But even back in the 90s when figure skating was way more popular, it's not like they could just stop working for the rest of their lives because they won gold at the Olympics. Today, especially, there is no way you could compare the sponsorships of, say, Nathan Chen, who is literally listed as one of the best figure skaters of all time, to other athletes like basketball and football players. 
You can't even compare it to the amount of sponsorships that Michael Phelps has gotten. There is no way that winning the Olympics would make Tanya set for life, but it would get her a place in professional ice shows once she retired from competitions, which could make her some money and create a sort of notoriety that she could use as maybe a future coach in the sport or something. But outside the world of figure skating, most people don't even know your name. Winning the Olympics and the money that went along with it would be life-changing for Tanya, but it would not set her up for life by any stretch of the imagination. And I just wanted to make that very clear. Once Jeff made his deal, Stanton Smith followed with their own plea deals, and they all threw Tanya right under that bus. They all did different interviews with all kinds of journalists, telling everyone that Tanya was involved. Tanya was still supposed to be training for the Olympics at this point. Then, word got out about some phone calls that Tanya had allegedly made to Boston. Like I mentioned in last episode and told you to remember a little bit earlier in this episode. The ones where they were trying to figure out where Nancy would be training. For a while, it seemed to be Jeff's word against Tanya's. Until the FBI found a scribbled note in the dumpster behind a restaurant in Portland that may or may not be tied to Tanya. On the note, there was a phone number and the words Tony Kent Arena, which is where Nancy practiced back in Boston, along with his address. It is still a controversy to this day as to whether or not that was Tanya's handwriting on the note. According to Tanya, when they tested the handwriting, they concluded that it was not her handwriting. But one of the investigators in the documentary also tells us that they had tested it and it was conclusively Tanya's handwriting. Handwriting analysis is not a science, and you can get varying opinions from different analysts. So in my opinion, this cannot prove anything absolutely. On January 27, 1994, there was a press conference held with Tanya. This was just two weeks until the Olympics. I would like to begin by saying how sorry I am about what happened to Nancy Kerrigan. I am embarrassed and ashamed to think that anyone close to me could be involved. I had no prior knowledge of the planned assault on Nancy Kerrigan. I am responsible, however, for failing, re for failing to report things I learned about the assault when I returned home from nationals. Despite my mistakes, I ask only for your understanding and the opportunity to re represent my country with the best figure skating performance of my life. Thank you. What about Jeff? Honestly, I think I believe this. I can believe that Jeff got some stupid idea in his head that Tanya winning meant he was going to become rich and saw that the judges preferred Nancy, so he wanted to take her down. Tanya, who's grown up in the sport of figure skating, had to have known how stupid this would be because there's no way of guaranteeing that Tanya would win anyway. Figure skating is a fickle sport. One day you're on, one day you're off, and you never know what kind of day the other competitors would have either. So to ensure a win for Tanya would mean taking down every other lady competing in the 1994 events. Now, after that press conference the Olympic Committee had to decide whether or not they would allow Tanya to compete at the Olympics before she had her day in court. Which makes things really complicated because Tanya hadn't been charged with anything, so it didn't seem like there was any real legal reason to take her off the U.S. team. But because she was implicated, they asked Tanya to step down. But Tanya was not letting go of her Olympic dream now. So she sued the Olympic Committee for $10 million dollars, because she had earned the right to skate at the Olympics. They reached a settlement out of court, and Tanya got on a plane to Norway for the most unforgettable Olympic Games in figure skating's history. In her mind, she was ready to show the world that no matter what anyone thinks, she's the best. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. 
With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. She arrived for her first press conference before the Olympic Games on February 16th, 1994. And she was skewered. One reporter said to her, Nancy's coach has described you as virtually friendless on the U.S. figure skating team, and Nancy herself said that she'd never hugged you before, and so no reason to hug you now, even if you wanted. How do you feel you've been received by your teammates after coming here? Fuck, dude. Tanya somehow kept a level head as I would be sobbing and replied, I feel like I have been received very well. Everyone has been very nice to me, and we're all excited to be here as a team and represent our country. Then they would run into another problem as Tanya and Nancy were scheduled to practice on the same session before the competition began. Nancy and her team did not want her to have to skate on the same ice as Tanya. And really, I don't blame them. But the rules are that each country has to skate as a group. In the documentary, In the documentary, they interview skating legend Paul Wiley, who is a friend of Nancy's, and he said that he actually wrote a letter on her behalf asking that she not have to skate on the same ice as Tanya, which I think is very, very sweet. But the Olympic Committee was like, this happened on U.S. territory. It stays there. It's not our problem. They have to skate together. So Tanya and Nancy would have to share the ice, and the media was salivating in excitement. According to someone in the documentary, there was this feeling it was going to be Betty and Veronica scratching each other's eyes out the moment they saw each other. Yeah, because they're both women, it's going to be a cat fight. Shut up. Another guy says, of course we wanted to see them fight. That's why we went. Excuse me? These are two professional athletes, not two women competing in a mud wrestling competition. You really thought that was going to happen? Get your heads out of your misogynistic fantasy and into reality. At the practice session, according to Tanya, she went up to Nancy when she spotted her and said how sorry she was for, quote, being around the people that had done this to her. Again, according to Tanya, Nancy blew her off. Nothing. I thought we were friends. All of us had been on tour for years. And for her to treat me like that, like I was nothing, like she was above me. I mean, that, that was that's rude. Honestly, I would have done the same thing. And she wasn't apologizing for taking any part of it or anything like that. It was just apologizing for being acquainted with those people, which is valid. But I also think as the victim is not something I would want to hear. And Nancy had other things on her mind. She was ready to make a statement. She showed up to practice in the exact same white lace dress that she was wearing on the day of her attack at the Nationals practice session. Biggest boss move ever. There's no doubt she was sending a message to Tanya and to the world that she was strong and she was ready for her moment. Nothing that had been thrown at her was going to stop her. The 1994 Women's Figure Skating Competition is still the most watched Olympic program in history. The ratings could be compared to the Super Bowl which would not happen now. When Nancy showed up on the ice in her short program, she skated beautifully. Then there was Tanya. 
Tanya had struggled with her triplets during the warm-up and stepped out of it again during her program. She did a double instead of a triple flip, and the only other jump requirement was the double or triple axle, in which she did a double, which she landed and was fine, but it wasn't very hard and didn't get her much points. After the short program, Nancy was in first place, and Tanya was in 10th place. The only way Tanya would have a chance at winning the gold medal is if she skated an absolutely flawless long program. The day of the long program was February 25th, 1994. When it came for the time of the event, they announced Tanya's name, but there was no Tanya. Where was she? Right now, it is Tanya Harding's turn to skate, but this tortured pass she's taken to the Olympics continues here. This is backstage, and Tanya Harding, after the warm-up, had a problem with her laces. And now the public address is announcing Tanya Harding's name, and she's still lacing up her boots. And this is every skater's recurring nightmare. This is one that you wake up screaming from every morning. I think they just gave her a, a two-minute warning, a two-minute call. And she's trying to get the lace going there. It's, this can really throw a skater off. If she's not out here in 45 seconds, I think they're going to disqualify her. I'm not sure. I've never seen anything like this before at any competition. Apparently, during the six-minute warm-up, one of her laces had broken. When they found a new set of laces, the new ones were apparently too small and they couldn't lace up her skates all the way. So Tanya and her team were rushing to get that fixed, and she only had two minutes before she would be disqualified. Finally, she made her way to the ice, saying loudly the whole way there, It's not gonna hold me! She looked extremely distraught as she skated out to her starting position. I feel like this may be the best place to note that she's skating to the theme music from Jurassic Park. When going into her first jump, a triple Lutz, she popped it, meaning she made it like a big open single jump, clearly meant to be something more difficult. Then she stopped her program and skated over to the judges stand in tears. I'm sure what she's telling them right now is that she tried her best to get out here on time. She threw the lace on, she threw it together, and, and she did the best she could to get out here. No one had ever seen anything like this, especially not at a big international competition and especially not at the Olympics. She threw her right skate onto the boards and pointed to her laces, explaining to the judges the predicament that she was in. It's one of the most infamous images of figure skating in history, in my opinion. She then left the ice, and it was announced that they would give her another opportunity to skate. Booing, and only a bit of applause could be heard in the audience when they made the announcement. A few skaters later, she tried again. But it would not be the moment Tanya had been dreaming it would be. She flubbed up on the triple lutz the first go-around, but she did land a beautiful triple lutz the second time. Next up, she had a triple axle planned, which she made into a single. She then landed a nice triple flip and showed off where her artistry had improved in her spiral sequence and in her choreography. Her next jump was a triple loop, which was not cleanly landed, followed up by a just-fine double-axle double-toe loop. About halfway through the program, she looked tired and sluggish and nothing like the powerful skater we were used to seeing with Tanya. She somehow didn't skate terribly, but it was no gold medal winning performance. When she got off the ice, you can hear her coach Diane say to her, what a brave kid. Her technical marks were all between 5.5 and 5.7, not the 6.0s like she'd wanted. The next day, the Tampa Bay Times reported, She spent most of her skating career on a shoestring budget. In some ways, then, it seems strange that Tanya Harding's Olympic career would end in controversy over a bootlace. A little further down the line in this paper, Harding, 23, interrupted her four-minute program after 45 seconds because of a faulty bootlace. She skated, crying uncontrollably to the referee's stand. I just feel like she had a breakdown. I don't know. I feel so bad for Tanya in this moment. It reminds me of this one time, one of my very first competitions, I saw the girl ahead of me forget her program. And it was a very similar scene where she was like skating to the judges and to her coach and crying. And I was supposed to be the next skater. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? And I felt so bad for the girl when I was younger, just as I felt bad for Tanya. 
nothing was going the way that she had planned. And she had tried so hard to concentrate. And if we are to believe that her laces really were messing her up, which I for one do believe, this sucks. She also should have had some spare laces in her bag or something and been a more responsible skater, but I digress. Up next was Nancy Kerrigan. Nancy skated to a piece of classical music, wearing a beautiful flesh-toned dress with sparkling sleeves. In my opinion, Nancy Kerrigan isn't that much more graceful than Tanya when I watch her in this program. And she skates quite stiffly, but she still skated beautifully and had a gorgeous program. It was pretty phenomenal. I can't believe she was able to make that comeback the way that she did. Everyone interviewed in the documentary said that she gave a gold medal winning performance. But unfortunately, she wouldn't win. The gold medal would go to the teenage Oksana Bayul of Ukraine by the smallest of margins. Nancy came in second. Tanya landed in eighth place. Also, this has nothing to do with the Tanya story exactly, but Nancy made a huge stink during the award ceremony because she and the other medalists had to wait for Oksana to reapply her makeup after crying it off. And they also couldn't find a copy of the Ukrainian national anthem as no one from the country had ever won the event before. From Tanya's skate laces all the way to the medal ceremony, which was delayed for more than 10 minutes. Nancy Kerrigan and Shen Lu thought they were waiting for Oksana Bayul to be made up. In fact, it was Oksana's makeup, but also no one could find a copy of the Ukrainian national anthem. People were really pissed that Oksana Bayul won and Nancy didn't win. And some people think it was a political move. Maybe Nancy was being blamed for the whole attack? People thought it was a true injustice. Back in Portland after the Olympics, Tanya entered a plea of guilty to the charge of conspiracy to hinder prosecution, receiving three years probation and a $160,000 fine for court fees. Shortly after this, the United States Figure Skating Association, USFSA at the time, unanimously agreed that Tanya would be removed as the 1994 National Women's Figure Skating Champion and would be banned from USFSA membership for the rest of her life. To Tanya, this was worse than going to jail. She can't skate anywhere ever again. Many people felt this was the right choice made by U.S. figure skating. And I do agree that she did need to be punished in some way, but maybe not life banishment? Tanya was left with nothing without figure skating. She had no other source of income. She had only ever completed her sophomore year of high school, though she had gotten her GED, and she had no other tangible skills except for her insane abilities in the sport of figure skating. Nancy and Tanya's lives would take very separate paths from then on out, but they would be inextricably linked to each other forever. Nancy rose the newfound wave of popularity in figure skating because this event actually made a lot of people want to start skating and wanting to watch more skating. And Nancy became a full-on legit celebrity. And because she had won the silver medal, of course, they asked her to do a bunch of different events and fluff pieces and things like that. So as promised, here is a clip of Nancy Kerrigan having an absolutely awful time at either Disneyland or Disney World. At one point, she even complains to Mickey Mouse about how corny it is. I'm just going to play this news segment for you because, dear God. Kerrigan even had to be coached to smile. Now listen carefully to the off-camera voice that has to tell her to smile, honey. Smile, honey. <clears throat> What's this for? Well, this is going to be uplink to uh, most of the stations across the country that are eager to hear about you. <laughs> we have an attitude problem here. We just wanted to welcome you back. During a parade, Kerrigan complained to Mickey Mouse. It's so corny, so dumb. I hate it. The most corny thing I've ever done. Disney also arranged for Kerrigan to make appearances on the morning talk shows. Today in L.A., viewers got only an empty chair until Kerrigan finally showed up only seconds before the end of the show. Hi, Southern California. Apparently, somebody forgot to remind Nancy Kerrigan that Disney is paying her a reported $2 million to make television appearances like these, a movie and a TV deal. It looks like Disney has a frosty ice princess on their hands. In a lot of ways, I find it really misogynistic because just please never ask a woman to smile. Please don't. But at the same time, Nancy, come on, you're at Disneyland, Disney World, you're a silver medalist at the Olympics, and they're here celebrating you with a parade, and you 
could not look like you are having a worse time. As for Tanya, shortly after being kicked out of U.S. figure skating, a topless video of Tanya from 1991 was shown on a current affair, and three stills from the film were published in The Sun. It was reported by the New York Post that it was Jeff Galuli who had supplied the media with the videotape in exchange for money. Later that year in July, Penthouse announced that its September issue would include more stills of Tanya and Jeff having intercourse, along with a 35-minute sex tape that would be copied and marketed through Penthouse. Allegedly, Jeff and Tanya worked out an equal payment deal with Penthouse for this. In 1994, Tanya appeared at a professional wrestling show and performed with her band that night, which was called the Golden Blades, as she always had gold-colored blades when she competed. But they were booed off the stage, and it would be their only performance. How sad. In 1996, Tanya acted in a film called Breakaway about her character being in an organized crime syndicate. She began a boxing career for herself in 2002, but only did this for about two years due to her asthma. She had three wins and two losses in her short boxing career. After that, she worked as a welder, a painter at a metal fabrication company, and a hardware sales clerk at Sears. In 2009, she set a new land speed record for a vintage gas coupe in a driving race. In 2010, she remarried to a man named Joseph Price, who she now has a son, Gordon, with, whom was born in 2011. In 2017, she said she worked as a painter and deck builder and was living in Vancouver, Washington. But... Things would soon turn around for Tanya when she got a call from screenwriter Stephen Rogers, who had gotten the idea to turn Tanya's story into a movie after watching the same Price of Gold documentary that I watched. He wanted to interview Tanya and other people involved, including Jeff and her mother, Lavana, to try to uncover the fuller story of the Nancy-Tanya saga than the one that was shown on the news in the 90s. The film premiered at the 2017 Toronto International Film Festival, and once it was out in theaters to the public, it grossed a whopping $53.9 million worldwide. The film got three Oscar nominations, one for Best Film Editing, Margot Robbie was nominated for Best Actress, and Alison Janney, who played Lavana, won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Okay, quick side story. Alice and Janney's friend used to sell her clothes at my old job all the time, and so I actually have a couple of old clothing items of Alice and Janney's, which is super weird, but I love her so much. When Nancy was asked if she had seen the film, she said she hadn't. She doesn't seem to have any interest in reliving that part of her life, and I don't blame her. As for Tanya, the public started to view her in a very different light. The movie highlighted the abuses she suffered under her mother throughout her childhood, the domestic violence perpetrated in her marriage, and the unfair treatment she received in the world of figure skating showed the 2017 audience another side of Tanya, one that was more sympathetic. As a former figure skater who had spent her whole life treating Tanya like the boogeyman, I was conflicted. I was glad that a truer and more complete story of the incident and of Tanya's life, and of figure skating, was out there. But I couldn't help but feel bad for Nancy, who had to see Tanya on Ellen and at the Oscars. And at the same time, I'm glad for Tanya too. I don't think she deserved a life sentence of public scrutiny. I think she deserves a second chance. And it seems like she may have gotten it. In 2018, she joined the cast of Dancing with the Stars, partnered with Sasha Farber. She won third place. And she finally got a sponsorship deal in 2019 with direct auto insurance. When she went on The Ellen Show in 2018, Tanya even took her producers skating with her and told us that she found a rink to practice in three times a week. She has even been invited to join as a commentator for some skating events. But for the most part, she's kept to herself and spends time with her family. And that is the unbelievable story of Tanya Harding and the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. I am so curious to hear all of your thoughts on this story. I think that it is definitely more popular to be Team Tanya these days, which was definitely not the case when I was growing up. And I think that, like I mentioned earlier in the episode, you've got to explore the gray areas of this story and not just see it as one bad woman versus one good woman. Nancy Kerrigan is kind of a brat. There were plenty of instances after this event and before where people were kind of rubbed the wrong way by Nancy. She's also not super squeaky clean and friendly. She's kind of rude. <laughs> 
But Tanya was just completely annihilated. But I'm glad that she did finally get back to the sport that she loves so much. And I'm glad that she is still doing it to this day. Honestly, I need to get my ass back on the ice just for some exercise. I miss it a lot. But let me know what your experiences were with this story. If you are a child of the 90s, did you have the same kind of thinking that I did? Or have you always been Team Tanya? Reach out to me and let me know because I am very, very curious. And if you want more episodes of Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist and you want to spend a little bit more time with me and you want to donate to the show to make sure that I can continue doing this, you can go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist. I have two level options for you. Within the next few days, I will be changing the Angry Feminist book club into Mad Gabin with Madigan, which is $5 a month where I will be answering your questions, questions from the internet, giving some advice, telling some funny stories, and elaborating a little bit on some of the other things that I like to discuss on the main feed. And then you can also become a feminist fave for $8 a month, where you get these episodes early and ad-free. You'll get all the Mad Gabin with Madigan stuff. You get some extra bonus content, and I am uploading a recap episode after uploading Monday's full-length episode each week to give just kind of a conclusion to that week's topic. I definitely have some extra stories regarding this week's conversation, so I can't wait to record that for all of you. You can hear some more skating stories. So just go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist and choose a level that works best for you. Your donations truly make a huge difference and mean the world to me. So thank you so very much. And the other thing that makes me just the happiest podcaster in the world is when you go to your Apple podcast app and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. And if you like to listen on Spotify, you can rate over there as well. If you have any questions or need any advice that you want me to cover on Mad Gabin with Madigan, please reach out to me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me and follow me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. All right, that is all that I have for all of you lovely people today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.